This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Necessary Truths of the Gospel. In the first half, Richard D. Draper shares his address, Light, Truth, and Grace, Three Interrelated Principles Necessary for Exaltation. Then in the second half, William A. Barrett speaks on Precious Precepts of Truth. My brothers and sisters, some years ago, I was teaching at uh, what was then the Utah Valley Community College at the Institute there. After what I considered to be a particularly inspiring lesson, one of my students came up like this and said, Brother Draper, don't get me wrong, I like your class, but I have to think so hard it makes my brain hurt. Well, I don't want to give anybody a headache today. Even though we are, I'm going to have to confess, go pretty deeply into some of the scriptures. But I will consider myself successful if I don't give anyone here any heartburn. So that's my objective. Thinking, I don't mind. Heartburn, I'm concerned about. So with that, let us begin. I have found over the years, as I have read closely the scriptures, that some are frankly baffling. Some I have read over and over and still don't understand what they are saying. However, pondering, praying, meditating, and often studying have brought me insight and understanding. For example, two scriptures I initially found quite baffling were these. The Doctrine and Covenant states concerning Christ that he descended below all things, that he might be in and through all things the light of truth, which truth shineth. That seems to say that Jesus' descent below all things allowed him to illuminate the truth. But what exactly does the second phrase mean? How does truth shine? In another scripture, the Lord castigated Frederick G. Williams for not teaching his children light and truth. Now, I feel comfortable teaching my children truth But how exactly am I to teach them light? What is light anyway? When I was a sophomore here, I took an astronomy class, and there I found out that light has the properties of a particle and also the properties of a wave, but it technically wasn't either. And therefore I learned a new word, wavicle. I'm not sure what a wavicle is, And I certainly don't understand how to teach it to my children, nor why it's important that I do so. When I was a junior, I ran into the above scriptures that I just mentioned and began to ponder them. And I must confess that I simply could not get my mind around them. Then one day, years later, understanding came. I was one of a number of church education system faculty who was giving a week-long presentation in Tempe, Arizona. On this particular day, I had slipped off to a laundromat where I was to do some much-needed washing. It was while my clothes were drying that I read Doctrine and Covenants section 93 and again was brought up against light and truth. But this time, something happened. A number of scriptures slotted themselves into place, and I understood. It is this understanding which I have chosen to share with you today. We begin with a scripture that is well known by all of us who attend BYU, which is, The glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light 
and truth. Quite frankly, that one also baffled me. But I liked the idea of God being associated with glory. Indeed, the concept of glory is very prominent uh, in the scriptures, especially as something bestowed upon the faithful as a reward by God. But what is glory? According to a modern dictionary, it is fame, honor, distinction, or renown. Over many centuries, Christian theologians such as Milton, Johnson, Thomas Aquinas, and C.S. Lewis have defined the term in this very scriptural way. Specifically, glory denoted the appreciation or approval from God which he bestowed upon his followers. It was, indeed, his favor or respect which he granted those who met with his divine approbation. The definition given in section 93 does not quite fit with this modern dictionary, at least so far as the glory of God is concerned. His glory, as defined under inspiration, is something associated with his very nature, not just something he bestows upon others. For example, Moses not only shared in the glory of God, but also saw it. The account in Moses, chapter 1, verse 2, states, And he saw God face to face, and he talked with him, and the glory of God was upon Moses. Therefore, and that therefore I think is significant, Moses could endure his presence. There is no doubt that Moses was under God's favor. But this uh, revelation shows that God's glory was a capacitating agent that made it possible for Moses to bear God's presence. That, however, was not all. Through that power, Moses was endowed with sufficient intellect to understand, to a degree, the nature of God's work. The Lord stated that he would show Moses the workmanship of his hands, but he puts this caveat in there. But on all, but not all, for my work is without end, and also my words, for they never cease. He then explained why he would not show Moses all his works. No man, he says, can behold all my works except he behold all my glory, and afterwards remain in the flesh on the earth. The scripture suggests that it is God's glory that gives him the capacity to be all-seeing, Further, the ability to behold all that glory would require such a change in the constitution of a person that he would be more than mortal. The Lord didn't want a more than mortal Moses, and therefore he wasn't willing to show him all his glory, or give him all his glory, and show him all his works. Now, a, mo- now, a modern dictionary gives as a secondary definition of glory a ring or spot of light. Here, glory is associated with radiance. The dictionary gives one the feeling that such association is very limited. That, however, is not the case in a dictionary available to Joseph Smith. According to that dictionary, glory is first and foremost brightness, luster, and splendor. Only in a secondary sense is it fame or praise. That dictionary notes that in a scriptural sense, the, the uh, glory is a manifestation of the presence of God. 
This meaning accords much better with Joseph Smith's use of the term. For example, while recounting his first vision, and most of us are very familiar with this one, but he says, I saw a pillar of light over my head above the brightness of the sun, which gradually descended until it fell upon me. I saw two personages whose glory and brightness defy all description. Writing of this experience, on another occasion, he stated this, I was enwrapped in heavenly vision and saw two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in features and likeness. Now listen. Surrounded with a brilliant light which eclipsed the sun at noonday. In these passages, glory is associated with radiance. This association fits nicely with that which we see in Doctrine and Covenants section 93. That is, that light is a constituent part of glory. To ancient Israel, one of the important aspects of God was his ability to manifest himself through burning light. Indeed, Israel stood in awe because of the brilliance, like a devouring inferno, which sat on the top of Mount Sinai. Moses proclaimed to Israel, The Lord thy God is a consuming fire. His presence was then, uh, was more than, I apologize, his presence was manifest on more than one occasion by a pillar of fire which gave light to Israel but vexed the Egyptians. A cloud of his glory dwelt upon the tabernacle and filled the court with radiance. Such a phenomenon belongs not only to the past, however, but also belongs to our future. Indeed, the Lord has promised us that this generation shall not pass away until an house shall be built unto the Lord. Now listen. And a cloud shall rest upon it, which cloud shall be even the glory of the Lord, which shall fill the house. Like Moses, Joseph Smith knew well the glory associated with the presence of the Lord. Of his appearance in the Kirtland Temple, Joseph Smith reported, his eyes were a flame of fire, his countenance shone above the brightness of the sun. I wonder what that looks like. Uh, the brightest thing I know is the sun, albeit these spotlights are doing good competition. But the brightest thing I know is the sun. How much brighter than the sun was what Joseph Smith saw? Okay. Well, when Jesus comes a second time, we are told that he will be clothed in the brightness of his glory. These are only a few of the many references suggesting that light or radiance is an important aspect of the glory of God. But I have to ask again, what exactly is light? What am I supposed to teach my children? A careful look at the way the term is used in the scriptures suggests that it is more than mere luminosity. When the Lord states, The light which shineth, which giveth you light, is through him who enlighteneth your eyes, which is the same light that quickeneth your understanding. This phrase defines light as something that makes vision possible, but also as that force which activates and stimulates the intellect. Further, the scripture tells us that light is in all things, gives life to all things, and, interestingly enough, is the law by which all things are governed. Thus, a more full definition would make light an ever-present, life and law-inducing power that manifests itself, among other ways, as normal light, intellectual activity, 
and living energy that abides in all things. A scripture declares that light proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space and that it is the power of God who sitteth upon his throne, who is in the bosom of eternity, who is in the midst of all things. Therefore, to rephrase for emphasis, these scriptures suggest that the term light is used to describe an aspect of God's power which radiates out from him, expanding with his work and will, enlightening, organizing, capacitating, and quickening, that is, giving life, as it does so. Perhaps, therefore, the best definition would be living and capacitating energy. This idea is expressed in the scripture that states, That which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. The scripture suggests that the continual reception of this living energy endows one with ability, one of which is to draw ever closer to perfection. Thus the Lord states, If your eye be single to my glory, your whole body shall be filled with light, and there shall be no darkness in you. And then listen to this. And that body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things. As one increases in light... He increases in ability until he is able to comprehend all things. One is not, however, glorified in light, or is here defined, power or energy. Indeed, exaltation is contingent upon the reception of the other all-important element of which glory is composed, namely, truth. Section 93 teaches us that He that keepeth his, God's commandments, receiveth truth and light until he is glorified in truth and knoweth all things. The glorifying principle is truth. Defining truth, the scripture states that it is, as many of you know, knowledge of things as they are and as they were and as they are to come. In other words, truth is knowledge of what a Latter-day Saint hymn proclaims as the sum of existence. Truth defined in this way is always associated with light because these higher truths can only be acquired through the power or the capacitating force of light. Without the faculty created by light, a fullness of truth could never be gained. For example... If my spiritual mind is pint-sized, I can only hold a pint of truth. If God is to give me more truth, he must also give me the capacity. Light is the expanding agent. It comes in and expands my mind, as it were, to quart-sized, and therefore I can now hold a quart of truth. The light could also expand so I could understand a gallon of truth, and so it goes until I am able to understand all things. So light makes it possible, then, for me to receive the larger endowment and ever larger endowment of truth. Now, God does not give these higher truths to just anyone. Indeed, the acquisition of both light and truth is dependent on obedience, When we say obey, that's kind of a four-letter word, and we get a little nervous about this. But this is a good four-letter word, even though it makes us a little nervous. What's this obey thing? But the Lord explains why we need to be obedient. Indeed, he says the following, You shall live 
by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. The explanation seems to be simply this. If you want quality of life, if you want to really live, you must be obedient. Again, the Lord explains why obedience is necessary. For the word of the Lord is truth, he says, and whatsoever is truth is light, and whatsoever is light is spirit, even the spirit of Jesus Christ. The factors that bring quality of life, that is, light and truth, are equated with the Spirit of Christ. And because He alone controls their dissemination uh, through the bestowal of His Spirit, He can stipulate the means by which they are granted. Thus, obedience to His will is absolutely requisite for those who would gain life, especially quality of life. According to the Doctrine and Covenants, this is section 131, all spirit is matter. If this includes the Spirit of Christ, then its bestowal upon an individual is an impartation of actual celestial substance, actual element of spirit, producing higher power, higher capacity, higher life. The result of its infusion would be spiritual and intellectual capacitation, which would allow the individual to progress to the point that he could enjoy eternal life of fullness of the glory and truth of God. But the capacitating force of light would have to precede the possession of the celestial substance. Therefore, the scriptures continue, And the Spirit giveth light to every man that cometh into the world, and the Spirit enlighteneth, I take this to mean gives truth too, every man, in the, uh, every man through the world that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit, and everyone that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit cometh unto God, even the Father. Light, that is capacitating power, and truth, that is enlightenment, are received by the acquisition of the celestial element through the Spirit of Christ to those who obey the Word. But first comes obedience, then comes light, and finally truth. That's the way the Lord has designed it. Thus all Word, Light, Truth, Spirit become united. They are inseparably welded together so that a person cannot be touched by one without being touched by all. Accordingly, the scripture states that my voice is spirit, my spirit is truth. Uh, Truth abideth and hath no end, and if it be in you, it shall abound. As noted already, that body which is filled with light, that is the power of God, can comprehend all things. Namely, it can hold all truth. For emphasis, let me say again that truth is the basis of glorification. Doctrine and Covenants section 93 helps us understand why. In verse 30 we read, All truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it to act for itself as all intelligence also. Then this arresting statement... Otherwise, there is no existence. The very essence of existence is the ability of truth and intelligence to act for themselves. But here we find another one of those baffling scriptures. How can truth, which has been defined as uh, defined earlier as light, act? It would be more comprehensible if the scripture said that truth impels or truth causes righteous action. That would make sense. But that's not what the scripture says. 
It says that truth acts. And again, I'm baffled. You can see I'm baffled right now. I'm right? trying to get my mind around this. How in the world does truth act? And what in the world is all truth? Is there more than one kind of truth? So what indeed is going on here? Understanding comes from the latter part of verse 30, which states that all intelligence is free to act. As noted above, intelligence is equated with light and truth. But intelligence here is equated with a specific spiritual substance. In verse 29 of section 93, it states intelligence or the light of truth. Notice it doesn't say intelligence, light, and truth. It says intelligence, the light of truth, was not created or made, neither indeed can be, and that this eternal material is the substance from which mankind's spirit is made. Thus, intelligence has two scriptural definitions. One is an abstraction designated as light and truth, conveying the idea of mental acuity by which existence is cognized. The other is more concrete. It designates the scriptural substance of being which is called light, the light of truth and of which human, as I said, humankind, which is the very center or essence of the soul of humankind. So the context of verse 30 suggests that intelligence in this instance should be understood in this sense, that is, all intelligence, that is, humankind, as I see it from spirit birth through the resurrection, is free to act within the bounds which God has set. If intelligence then has two definitions, so may truth. The Lord says all truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it. If truth is the knowledge of the sum of existence, then all truth would seem to define existence itself. Thus, all existence, or all animated things that exist, that is truth, have a measure of independence in which it is free to act of this totality. That portion designated as intelligence and expressly associated with humankind is also free to act. Because it is a portion of the whole of reality, it is designated as the spirit of truth. Okay, we'll pause a moment and I ask, do you have a headache yet? Okay, we're, we're going to go on, so I'm going to sum, right? All intelligence, as I see it, identifies a component of the spirit aspect of existence. The phrase, all truth, defines the whole of that existence. The condition for glorification is cognition of that whole. Cognition comes only with obedience and the subsequent ac uh, acquisition of light. Then truth follows that as the capstone and the seal. Thus one is glorified in truth. Note that God is the one who sets the bounds and conditions that make cognition possible. He has determined that humans will be glorified only as they receive truth. But a person can receive a fullness of truth only as he receives a fullness of light. Emphasizing this point are the verses that state, Behold, here is the agency of man, and here is the condemnation of man, because that which is manifest from the beginning is plainly manifest unto them, that is, the truth, and they receive not the light or the capacitating power. And every man whose spirit receiveth not the light is under condemnation. 
Intelligence is free to choose or reject light. When it willfully rejects light, it also rejects truth, and condemnation follows. Now, what we have to understand is the process by which we mortals receive the glory of Christ. The Savior has told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Here, the emphasis seems to be that the only way to gain eternal life is through him, and he explains the reason. He says the following, I will appoint nothing unto you except it be by law, even as my Father and I ordained unto you before the world was. Going on, he states, I am the Lord thy God, and I give unto you this commandment, that no man shall come unto the Father but by me, or by my word, which is my law, saith the Lord. Here we see the central place that the word of Christ plays in the process of salvation. Man can only come to know God through the word of the Lord, but we have already seen that his word is equated with spirit, light, and truth. Therefore, the reception of the word is the reception of light and truth. The Savior's objective is to bring obedient souls to a fullness of glory. He knows how, for he followed the way set down by the Father. And if we are to receive glory, it will be on the same condition through which Christ himself received it. The Father's glory is a fullness of light and truth. Christ also was glorified as he too came to possess light and truth. It did not happen, however, all at once. Again, insight from section 93 states, I, John, saw that he received not the fullness at first, but received grace for grace. And he received not the fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until he received a fullness. Here we see the role played by grace in the process through which the Lord received a fullness of the glory of the Father. It seems to have been twofold. First, he received grace for grace, and second, he went from grace to grace. But what does it mean to receive grace for grace and to go from grace to grace? An answer lies in the very nature of grace. The word denotes favor, kindness, and goodwill. Out of this comes the theological definition, the unmerited love and favor of God, which uh, which he bestows upon his chosen ones. The key expression here are love and favor that motivates the father to assist his children. To receive grace for grace is to receive assistance on condition of giving assistance, but not just any kind of assistance will do. What transforms assistance into grace is the favor felt by the giver, which is extended to the receiver. Now listen even when such service may not be deserved. But grace does not have to be given without condition. Indeed, one of the important aspects of the word is reciprocity. The scriptures state specifically that man receives grace for grace. Thus, the extension of favor is meant to obligate the recipient so that she or he will extend the same to others. As they meet this condition, more and more grace is extended to them, which further obligates them to greater assistance, and so on it goes. 
from one power level to another power level. Apparently, it was necessary for the Lord himself to grow through this process. In order to do so, he first received grace or divine assistance from the Father. This grace he extended to his brother, and as he did so, he received even more grace. The process continued until eventually he received a fullness of the glory of the Father, or all light and truth. The implication of this process is arresting in a very real way The Savior himself was saved by grace. And certainly it is the same with us. The Lord promises the following. If you keep my commandments, you shall receive of his, that is of God's fullness, and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. Thus to those who serve, the Lord gives grace. That is, he imparts to them light and truth. That is, capacity plus enlightenment. Let me see if I can sum this up with an anecdote. Again, going back a few decades, I had uh, was asked to visit with a student. She was not one of mine, non-traditional student, a member of the church uh, for about three years. She was in her mid-30s. She was, uh, being a new member of the church, quite caught up uh, with the idea of women not being able to hold the priesthood and really wondered if there was some kind of equality in the church, what her role was, and so on. Because I was following women's issues at the time, the director of the institute asked me if I would speak with her. Wow, I'll tell you, she was really something. A very, very bright woman, very intense. In fact, as we uh, chatted, I came to the point, I'm going to call her Gloria. I said, Gloria, I'm, I'm really concerned about your passion on this issue. It's going to drive you right out of the church if you're not careful. I remember her sitting back on a chair and taking a breath and saying, Oh, Brother Draper, I could never leave this church. I know the power of the gospel. And then she told me a story that was heartbreaking. She was the product of an extremely abusive childhood. And when I say abusive, every sense of the word. I'm not going to go into it. I'll let you use your imaginations. In the process... She learned how to lie and how to manipulate, though it did not get her out of problems all the time. It did enough that she really befriended the lie. Well, when she was 14, uh, her mother finally divorced. Uh, They moved to a new city, and Gloria had learned something. And that is, the lie had served her well, but there was a downside to lying, and that is, it cost her friendships. People don't like to be lied to, and they certainly don't like to be manipulated. And so when she moved to a new city and to a new life, she said, Lie, I love you, I thank you, you've been wonderful for me, but you're too expensive. I don't want you to follow me into my new life. And so she determined she would not lie. She continued to lie. She lied through junior high, she lied through uh, high school. Finally, she went to college. She said, I'm a big person now. And lie, I thought you were my friend, but you're not. You are way too expensive. I want nothing to do with you. I will not lie. She continued to lie. She met a man. She fell in love with him. He fell in love with her. He recognized her problem and he said, we can do this together. We will overcome together. But here's the rules. Don't ever lie to me. You don't need to lie to me. She said, with all of her heart and soul, I will not lie to you. And what did she do? She lied. She said, Brother Draper, you cannot imagine my pain as I saw the lie over the years kill the love of my husband for me. But I couldn't quit lying. 
and eventually he had had enough and went away. They had had two children by this time in the depth of depression. A knock came on her door and there was two LDS missionaries, two bright, delightful sisters who said, can we come in and leave a message of hope, which she desperately needed, and so Gloria invited them in. Over time, she uh, accepted the missionary discussions and began reading the Book of Mormon, with which she was absolutely thrilled until she came to one particular scripture. Woe unto the liar, for he shall be thrust down to hell. And right there, Gloria knew there was no hope for her, but there was hope for her boys. So she agreed to have them baptized. A perceptive branch president on the day of baptism called her into his office and said, Why aren't you being baptized? And she lied. Oh, it's all right for my boys. It's not for me. To which he, this inspired branch president, said, Gloria, I promise you, if you will exercise faith in Christ this day, you will receive power to overcome all that is holding you back. She told me with tremendous faith she entered the waters of baptism. And as one of the elders gave her the uh, Holy Ghost, brought her into the kingdom, he said under inspiration, your greatest challenge is lifted from this moment. She said, Brother Draper, that happened three years ago, and from that day to this, I have never lied. So what happened, my brothers and sisters? It is this. Through desire and obedience to the degree she could and love her children, she made commitment. Light flowed which gave her capacity beyond her native ability, lifted her and healed her, and prepared her for the reception of the Holy Ghost. God works through the impartation of light and truth. It is my prayer that through our obedience, our loving obedience, and our loving service, that we, too, may be filled with light and truth. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Necessary Truths of the Gospel. We've just heard from Richard D. Draper. After the break, we'll return with William A. Barrett for Precious Precepts of Truth. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Necessary Truths of the Gospel. Next is William A. Barrett, a BYU professor of computer science at the time of this address, titled Precious Precepts of Truth. A good friend called to my attention that the BYU homepage shows that this is Sleep Awareness Week and suggested that it might be just more than coincidence that I'd been asked to speak. In fact, today's uh, webpage features cat naps, where sleepy students will find a comfortable respite from classes. I want President Tanner to know that I'm anxious to serve the students in any way possible. And I support all such BYU initiatives. What a blessing it is to be here at BYU to sing, study, and worship under the light of the restored gospel to be guided by prophets, seers, and revelators. I am deeply grateful for that and grateful today to be surrounded by superb faculty, extraordinary students, parents, friends, and family, 
including a talented brother, Robert Barrett, also a professor at BYU. In fact, there are three of us, and Robert's paintings will be featured today in the talk. I was privileged to teach a Book of Mormon class last semester, which I count one of the greatest experiences I've had in the 20 years that I've been here at BYU. While grading a student's paper from that class, I was prompted with some thoughts that I'd like to share with you here today. Joseph Smith said, I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion, and a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. Since I am by nature an experimental scientist, I wanted to see if that statement is true, so I performed an experiment upon the Word. To conduct the experiment, I kept the Daily Book of Mormon journal. Each morning I would read and ponder a verse and then write about it, sometimes only part of a verse because the Book of Mormon is so rich. Sometimes I would write a paragraph and sometimes two to three pages. It took me several handwritten journals and five years to get through Second Nephi. The meaning of many verses would not yield themselves to a single reading, like those in the Isaiah chapters. Often multiple prayerful readings and ponderings were necessary, following which would so often come the sweet tutoring influence of the Spirit, as I would write. And I would find myself learning from what was being written. I would also try to teach and apply what I read and what I wrote. What was the result of this experiment? Not only did it get me nearer to God, but the catalyzing influence of the Book of Mormon taught me to listen to and learn from the Spirit and to treasure the precious precepts and freshwater doctrine that flow unimpeded from the pages of the Book of Mormon. It has also cultivated a love for the Book of Mormon which will never fade. I read from it every day. In short, I'm hooked. I remember reading one morning the words of Nephi, found in 2 Nephi 28, verse 30, where Nephi writes, For behold, thus saith the Lord God, I will give unto the children of men line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts and lend an ear unto my counsel, for they shall learn wisdom. For unto him that receiveth I will give more, and from them that shall say, We have enough, from them shall be taken away even that which they have. And I wrote the following. Our ever so generous Heavenly Father does not penuriously withhold precious precepts from us. He is not stingy, but is giving. But He does not want to drown us in doctrine or give us more than we can handle. Rather, He gives us line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, measuring carefully what we can handle, what we can assimilate, making sure that we absorb and respond to that which we have been given before pouring more upon us. What a gracious and kind Heavenly Father we have! My writing prompted me to ask the question I began with, Why and how are we blessed when we hearken to His precepts and lend an ear to His counsel? And the answers began to flow. First, our Father's divine laws are packaged in precious precepts taught by His Son. For example, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And those that make peace with God, with their neighbors, and with themselves are blessed with an increased measure of the Spirit in their lives, with happiness, and with greater knowledge and purpose. Thus, when we obtain any blessing from God, 
It is through obedience to the law upon which it is predicated. The law, in this example, is to live in peace. The precept is that blessings come from living the law. The perceptive come to learn to love the predicates of the precepts. A motivating precept at BYU might be, whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. Perhaps this precept can be generalized. Whatever principle of testimony, devotion, and worthiness I attain unto before my mission will rise with me in the mission field. Whatever principle of obedience, diligence, and selfless service I attain unto during my mission will rise with me when I return. Whatever principle of kindness, gentleness, and charity I attain unto before marriage will rise with me in my family life. And maybe even for us here now, whatever measure of work, effort, and understanding I attain unto during this semester will rise with me in finals week. <clears throat> A second reason why we are blessed when we hearken to His precepts and lend an ear to His counsel is that those who receive and act on the precepts of God receive more. And since each precept brings with it attendant blessings, receiving more brings more blessings. Thus, to the list of precious precepts, we may add the precept of perpetuation, since one precept acted upon begets another. This is not quite the precept of perpetual precepts, since it is incumbent upon us to act, but it is close. Third, in addition to the blessings attached to a given precept and the promise of more to come, there is a bonus blessing. That is that the compounding and knitting together of precious precepts yields compounded blessings, just as with compounded interest. The quantum mechanics of both precepts and blessings rubbing against each other also produces a quantum leap in gratitude and joy, in faith and humility, and in the ability to perceive the higher-level precepts that flow from the interleaving of precept with precept and blessing with blessing. Such weaving produces genuine wisdom and, when woven by the Lord, becomes part of the tapestry of our lives. So in this verse, more really does mean more, more than we have room to receive, because such precepts and blessings are forever growing, so that we can forever grow, because that, too, is woven into the fabric of our divine nature. Thus, when we say, we have had enough, we cease to grow and begin to shrink from the endowment attendant to our being sons and daughters of God. Such shrinking not only curtails growth, but causes a spiraling decline and unraveling of the compounded precepts and blessings we once enjoyed. In such shrinking, I do not believe that our kind Father in Heaven snatches back with anger or disgust or retribution, for His hand is ever stretched out still. But I do believe His heart breaks a little, and often a lot, when we are not willing to receive that which we might have received. And being an all-wise Heavenly Father, He will not burden us with precepts and blessings we are not prepared to receive. As the Master Gardener, He titrates the soil of our soul in a mercifully measured way, line upon line, precept upon precept, and here a little, and there a little. He is not, because He is, is not stingy but giving, it is quite the opposite from men. It is so that little by little we can one day receive all that He has. Because His love for us is perfect, He will not drown us in perfect precepts 
or blessings we are not prepared to receive, whether they are being dispensed with an eyedropper or a fire hose. Life in general is a grand experiment in learning correct precepts. Allow me to illustrate this with an example from my childhood. When I was 10 years old, I was out in the country at my grandmother's house sled riding with my two brothers on New Year's Day. It was a beautiful courier knife setting as we stood at the top of the hill gazing down over the pasture covered in white with a beautiful clear stream angling across the bottom. As in a Norman Rockwell painting, I hopped on my flexible flyer and told my brother Wayne to hop on top. My artistic brother, Robert, remained at the top of the hill to capture the magic moment in his memory. As down the hill we went. As we leveled out at the base of the hill, I performed the hard rudder right maneuver to avoid the impending stream. The sled disregarded my instructions, and into the icy stream we went. Undaunted, we dragged ourselves back into the house, took a hot bath, put on some warm, dry clothes, and went out again. As we approached the top of the hill again, I hopped on the sled and invited my older but now somewhat more cautious brother to hop on board, thinking to myself, this really should have worked. And down we went, again. But as we neared the stream, age gave way to discretion, and discretion being the better part of valor, my older brother bailed on me. After all, he is a mathematician, and he had a proof by example. As for me, and as you might suspect, the flexible steering mechanism had again failed me, and again I plummeted into the icy stream alone. However, this time a stick from the brush went through my cheek, and we had to go find someone to sew it up, or else I would have been out a third time because it really should have worked. <laughs> However, the laws of physics said otherwise. But perhaps some useful precepts can be drawn even from failed experiments. For one, overwhelming momentum overrides small course corrections, a vital lesson to remember in sledding as well as in personal relationships when you are alone, alone with someone late at night. A potentially slippery slope, a pattern for heartache. A reminder that if we fail to follow divinely established patterns of conduct and morality as taught by living prophets, the momentum of the moment may inflict mortal wounds robbing us of virtue, happiness, and peace of mind. Small course corrections each week as we partake of the sacrament, and each morning and night as we kneel before our Heavenly Father, remembering Him who was wounded for our transgressions, will prevent us from taking on the debilitating wounds which delay or destroy our scheduled patterns of personal progress and our future rendezvous with happiness. Such spiritual corrections are vital because the adversary also has patterns and plans which he can use to destroy us, patterns that fuel the vain and foolish precepts of men. But for us, a better pattern is don't be alone with someone late at night. Instead, allow small course corrections to guide your momentum rather than the other way around. Such careful thinking and behavior, if practiced daily and exercised thoughtfully, allow us to one day steer our immortal souls to the right hand of God in the kingdom of heaven. Clearly, discovering all true precepts from personal experience can be hazardous. As a practical matter, you have to be willing to learn from others, since there isn't time to perform all of the experiments or make all of the mistakes yourself. This is why the restored gospel is placed within our grasp and why we are here at BYU. 
Discovering true precepts in faith and science and the arts or great literature or whatever the course of study is a great adventure. I am confident that our Father in Heaven does not differentiate true precepts based on their perceived domain. Brigham Young taught that our religion is simply the truth. It is all said in this one expression. It embraces all truth wherever found and all the works of God and man that are visible or invisible to the mortal eye. Yet having said that, we must still labor for and search for true precepts, like the woman who, if she lost a piece of silver, would light a candle, sweep the house, and seek diligently till she find it. Sometimes students wring their hands, cross their fingers, and hope that their answer to a problem is right, even when the answer is hollow or not well thought out. Such flawed thinking can also lead to bad results when it comes to life's real problems regarding relationships, finances, or other personal choices. In contrast, I am convinced that those who really love the truth care more about finding correct answers and about what is really right than they care about vacuous answers that are expedient or acceptable. The world already has too many solutions of that kind. Life's real reward for genuine solutions to real problems is an exclamation point, not a checkmark. Henry Eyring, a noted chemist, and father to Elder Henry B. Eyring stated, The significant thing about a scientist is this. He simply expects the truth to prevail because it is the truth. He doesn't work very much on the reactions of the heart. In science, the thing is, and its being so, is something one cannot resent. If a thing is wrong, nothing can save it. And if it is right, it cannot help succeeding. Brigham Young stated that truth is calculated to sustain itself. It is based upon eternal facts and will endure, while all else will sooner or later perish. So, whether in the lab, the classroom, or the scriptures, we search for true principles and precepts with dogged determination. Whether in sledding or in science, we search for answers with tenacity and faith that we will find a solution. I have often told my own children that my idea of heaven is being trapped in a room with a handful of bright students and some problems that are so difficult you don't even know how to articulate them. They often respond by saying, hmm, that kind of sounds like the other place to me. <laughs> but when we have paid the price, needed answers to tough problems come as sudden bursts of ideas and intelligence, bringing elegant, high-level insights, the unmistakable signature of the Spirit but in his own time and in his own way. The best ideas always come from the Spirit. The rest we just labor and muddle over and try to make work. The following video segments show some of our current muddling. In computer graphics, we create models of real-world objects so that they can be animated and placed in movies in our lab. We do this by extracting points from photographs and then connect the dots to describe the object geometry. By assigning the right color to these points, a realistic model is created. Just as correctly connecting points here results in a believable model, so connecting the points of true precepts help us to see things as they really are and as they really will be. With about two and a half billion document images in the Granite Mountain Vault, automated handwriting recognition has become an important problem in family history because it helps us more efficiently identify names and information for temple work. We approach this problem using pattern recognition algorithms coupled with human training. Finding and recognizing ancestors not only helps us find ourselves, 
but also helps us recognize the unfolding patterns and precepts in our own lives. Our recent research in the medical domain makes use of globally optimal algorithms to accurately extract anatomy from medical scans. Just as a global understanding of object properties and medical imaging allows proper and timely diagnosis, so seeing our own inner parts through the lens of precious precepts from the restored gospel will help us not only see who we currently are, but what we ultimately must become. As we try to understand secular knowledge, we do the best we can, the best we can surmise with what we know, but it changes. Keep that in mind as you learn. We don't repudiate ideas just because they are from men, but as we muddle along, we winnow and sift for the truth, weighing what we learn carefully in the balance of restored truth and subjecting it to the light of the restored gospel. If a precept is true, it fits within the gospel framework. It is a piece of the puzzle. And if we will search and study by faith, the spiritual dimensions of all the precepts that we learn will become more evident to us and thereby enhance our faith. Nephi warns us about the precepts of men that will prevail in our day using words like contention, eat, drink, and be merry, lie a little, take advantage of others, and describes these as false and vain and foolish doctrines. Thus, another instructive experiment that enhances spiritual knowledge is to identify a precept of men and then discover the contrasting precept of God, or vice versa. For example, the precepts of men tell us that we must see before we can believe. Nephi teaches us that we must believe before we can see. The precepts of men teach that resources are scarce, that you must get all you can while you can. Scriptural precepts teach us that there is enough and to spare. Men's precepts urge a makeover in the image of the world. Alma urges a makeover in the image of God. Men teach to believe in nothing, hope for nothing, endure nothing, live without God in the world. But we believe all things, hope all things, endure all things, and find abundant life through Him. Men's way is to hide or cover sins because no one will know. God's way is for us to confess and forsake sins so that He can remember them no more. The precepts of men speak of being beaten with a few stripes, but ultimately saved, without ever having to change, without ever overcoming self or the world, without ever changing our hearts or feeling the peace and joy of repentance and forgiveness, without ever becoming like Him, but by accepting our Savior's stripes for us and repenting in the depths of humility, we can overcome ourselves and the world. The precepts of men will ultimately fail. The precepts of God will endure forever. A year or so ago, I conducted another experiment. I began to write down a list of precepts that I felt were unique to the Book of Mormon. Several hours and several pages later, I knew that I had only just begun. Allow me to close where I began by sharing a few of the precepts from the Book of Mormon that have become precious personal precepts to me and that get me nearer to God. Nephi's I will go and do reminds us that it is in the going and doing that we not only find that the Lord provides a way, but we find the way itself. And in following that way, we also find ourselves drawing nearer to Him. Lehi's opposition in all things helps me understand and cope with life's triumphs and tragedies. It helps me remember that I chose to choose, and that is why I am here. 
And it helps me remember, too, that our Savior had agency as well, but gave it away for you and for me, allowing His will to be swallowed up in the will of the Father as He suffered, bled, and died for me. And that I can never forget. And that draws me nearer to Him. It draws me nearer to God because it helps me understand how very comprehensive the infinite Atonement of Jesus Christ truly is, as He suffered for every broken bone and every broken heart. It helps me understand that His infinite suffering was born out of His infinite love for you and for me, and that we are of infinite worth because an infinite price was paid for us. Saved by grace, after all we can do, reminds me that some of the most precious precepts are found in pondering the parentheticals. From cover to cover, the Book of Mormon teaches me that Jesus Christ is and was the long-promised Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, our Savior and Redeemer, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. Understanding His pre-mortal identity, His long-suffering with the children of Israel, the very personal love He showed to the Nephites, helps me remember that He who has graven us in the palms of His hands cannot forget us, but is in this for the long haul. And seeing His endurance helps me endure a little longer, too. And finally, enduring to the end gets me nearer to Him, because it is at the end I will find Him. It is both the reading and abiding that gets us nearest to God and that allows us to accept His invitation to come unto Him and be saved. Because we cannot be saved in ignorance, we cannot receive all that our Father has without understanding all that He is and does. And so we perform the ultimate experiment by planting the seed in our hearts. We nourish it with patience and faith until it becomes a tree springing up in us unto everlasting life, throwing out a branch of charity here and virtue there, and overcoming the natural man in the process. Through His incomparable Atonement, Christ offers to us the fruit of the tree if we will fall down and partake of it. And if we do, then when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We will not only get nearer to Him spiritually, but nearer to being like Him, and you can't get any nearer than that. Elder Holland taught that to abide means to remain, to stay, but stay forever. If we will abide in these precepts, they will abide in us. More importantly, if we will abide in these precepts, we will abide in Him whose precepts these are, and He will abide in us permanently, unyieldingly, steadfastly, and forever. Thus Christ, of whom the Book of Mormon bears witness, is the ultimate precept. It is of Him that our lives must bear witness as we accept His invitation to come unto Him and become like Him. And it is of Him and His living reality that I bear witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Necessary Truths of the Gospel, with thoughts from Richard D. Draper and William A. Barrett. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.